Hi, my name is Trinity, and welcome to Kids Talk Church History, a one-of-a-kind podcast where kids investigate the history of the church. Over 2,000 years ago, Jesus said, I'll build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. How has Jesus built and preserved his church against all odds? Come with us on a trip through church history to find the answer, here on Kids Talk Church History. If you walked around Milan, Italy in the year 386, you would hear loud voices singing some original songs. Coming closer to one of the main churches, you would realize the voices came from the inside. Outside, a group of Roman soldiers would be standing around wondering how to respond. And if you had the opportunity to go inside and talk to one of those Christians, they would tell you the whole story. Stay with us as we discover this exciting moment in church history. I am Lucas, and I am 15. Uh, My name's Lucy, and I'm 16. And I am Linus. I'm 12. All three of us live in San Diego, California. The story we're telling today has to do with the common struggle between bishops and emperors in the Roman Empire. As you know from earlier episodes, in 313, Emperor Constantine made the Christian religion legal. This meant that emperors and governors could no longer persecute Christians legally. In some ways, things were easier, but there were still some problems because most emperors took it for granted that they were in charge even over the church and could tell bishops what to do. Of course, the Bible tells us to obey those in authority over us, so most bishops tried to do that. But what if an emperor asked them to do something contrary to God's word? This is what happened in Milan when Empress Justina, who followed Arianism, told Bishop Ambrose to give up one of the two churches in Milan so she could set up an Arian church. But before we get into the story, we should explain Arianism because the word Arian means something quite different today. We talked about it in an earlier episode, right? Yes, uh, especially in the one about Athanasius. Arius was a monk who taught that Jesus was not fully God, just a very special creature. Those who followed his teachings are called Arians. It was a terrible teaching because if Jesus is not truly God, he can't save us. And the Bible clearly teaches that Jesus is fully God. It's just hard to comprehend how someone could be fully God and fully man. And when something is hard to understand, some people try to explain it in ways that are not biblical. So then what did Ambrose do? I'm guessing he didn't just give Justina one of the churches. Well, we actually know the whole story from a letter that Ambrose wrote to his sister, Marcelina. He said, they are commanding, give up the church. I reply, God forbids me from giving it up. They tell me the emperor can do as he pleases, since he is Lord over all. I reply, don't make the huge mistake of believing, O emperor, that emperors may have the slightest authority over the things of God. It is written, give God the things that are God's and give Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Courts belong to the emperor, churches belong to the bishop. And in a sermon to his congregation, he said, don't be afraid. I will not abandon you. I can't answer violence with violence. I can lament and cry because my tears are my weapons against the soldiers. But he definitely did a lot more than just cry. Yes, because the majority of the people in Milan sided with him and they staged a huge sit-in. They occupied the two churches in Milan and refused to come out. And they would sing? Of course. Can you imagine sitting in church for days and days? After a while, Ambrose thought that the people were getting discouraged, and so he got them to sing. He had written some hymns for the church, mostly about Jesus being God. So he organized them in groups, with one group singing one line and one group responding with the other. 
How long did they stay in the church? Uh, about a week from the Friday before Palm Sunday to the Thursday before Resurrection Sunday, when they received news that the emperor had called back his soldiers. Go Ambrose. Uh, he really had a point. He told Emperor Valentinian II, who was the son of Justina, who ruled for him while he was young. If you can't occupy the home of a private citizen, why do you think you can take over a building that's dedicated to God? He also told him that as a Christian, as Valentinian claimed to be, he couldn't set himself above the church. And he actually had to repeat this lesson to Valentinian's son, Theodosius. Yes, Theodosius is actually the one who made Christianity the state religion. So he professed to be a Christian, but once he killed thousands of innocent citizens in revenge for the death of a Roman soldier, and Ambrose called him out on that and made him do penance in front of the whole city. We would nowadays call it church discipline. Ambrose sounds like a super bishop. Yes, but if you actually look at pictures of him, he looked very small and frail, and his skeleton, which has been preserved to this day, uh, seems to confirm that. He also suffered from a bad form of arthritis, but it's certain that he had a lot of courage. We'll say more about bishops and emperors, but it's time to read our mail. We have a question from nine-year-old Joshua from Texas. We learn in the book of Acts that Matthias takes Judas's place, but are not given more information about him. Is there anything else we can learn about Matthias from church history? Thank you, Joshua, for that question. We'll see if our expert, Dr. Brian Arnold, associate professor of theology and president of Phoenix Seminary, can give us an answer. But before we turn to him, let me remind our listeners, if you have a question or comment, you can email it to questions at kidstalkchurchhistory.org or go to our website at kidstalkchurchhistory.org and enter to win a copy of Simonetta Carr's Church History, courtesy of Reformation Heritage Books. And now we welcome our special guest on today's podcast. Besides his important service at Phoenix Seminary, Dr. Brian Arnold has written a few books about the early church, including Justification in the Second Century, and has two children, Jameson and Natalie. Dr. Arnold, thank you very much for joining us. Well, I'm glad to be here. So how old are your children? So I've got a, an 11-year-old son named Jameson and a nine-year-old daughter named Natalie. Do they listen to our podcast? After today, yes. All right. <laughs> I'll get them connected in. It's a great thing you're doing. Thank you for that. Let me start with Joshua's question. Do we know what happened to Matthias? We, we probably know a little bit less about him than almost any of the other apostles. And there's there's a lot of different traditions. And this is true for a number of the apostles as they go out. The historical record is not as strong. And everyone wants to claim that an apostle founded their church. Um, that was an important argument, even as we talk about bishops today, one of the one of the most important arguments in the early church for the authority of the church is that it had apostolic founder and then bishops after them uh, that they could trace all the way back to one of the apostles. So we see Matthias in places potentially in sub-Saharan Africa, all the way up to Cappadocia, where uh, is important for fourth century church history that we're talking about today is a couple uh, really important theologians lived there in, in the fourth century debating on issues like Arianism, on the uh, divinity, the Holy Spirit, things like that. Or we see him in Jerusalem. And so a couple of the reports had, had him there. One report that he was martyred um, and another report that he lived out his days to the end. So um, sorry to disappoint on that one. It, it's, it's very difficult to trace a lot of the early apostles and uh, know with any certainty of, of kind of where they ended. 
Thank you for that. Now, back to the Bishop Ambrose. We talked yes. a little about him, but didn't say anything about his life. Could you give us a sort of a summary of that? Yeah, I'd be happy to. I think you nailed it pretty well in, in a lot of those critical stories of what Ambrose did that kind of brought him into prominence. But he's probably born somewhere in, in Gaul, which would be like um, around France or so today. And his dad is a, is a Roman official. And this is pretty common in the early church where you'll see people uh, either themselves in some sort of an official capacity of the Roman Empire or a parent. Um, usually a father who had some sort of an official capacity, and they rise through the ranks of the church pretty quickly. Uh, we, we can see why, too, right? As as the administrative burden gets heavier in the church, having somebody who understands that at a important level uh, it goes a long way. So he's probably born there, comes back to Rome, gets educated, and ends up becoming the bishop in Milan. And even that was kind of accidental. So he is uh, there. And again, because of his upbringing and his his knowledge of governing affairs there's a dispute that breaks out and he kind of rushes in to try to settle it and a child allegedly yells ambrose for bishop and ambrose becomes bishop that way that was actually very common in the early church somebody would just cheer on a name and all of a sudden everybody's cheering so and so for bishop in this case again ambrose for bishop and and sure enough he become the bishop there eventually the church went away from that practice as you can imagine some unsavory figures can get elected into the bishopric that way. Uh, but, you know, Amb- Ambrose is well-educated. We know that. He is um, multilingual. He is, uh, he's a writer. It- it's interesting because we know of Ambrose, I think a lot of people, because he's the one who led Augustine to faith in Christ. And uh, Augustine is the most significant figure in church history. Uh, he has uh, voluminous writings, and we just set the doctrinal trajectory for the church, at least for the next thousand years. But really, uh, the reformers are, are using him a lot as well. But Ambrose is a theologian in his own right. And you mentioned some of the things that he did, everything from hymnody. He wrote a lot of hymns, um, actually. But he also wrote doctrinal things. And he is considered one of the four doctors of the Western church. So nowadays, they let anybody get a PhD and be call themselves doctor, like myself. But these were four critical big time theologians so there would be it would be uh, augustine um jerome who translated the bible from greek and uh, hebrew into latin um i said augustine right augustine gregory the great who was a significant bishop there in rome and ambrose so ambrose had a had an important role in his own right there in milan um, most notably with with augustine and you mentioned that the conflict that he had with the emperors and a lot of the questions of church state relations kind of rise up in the fourth century as there's new questions because as you mentioned constantine is converted and he uh, makes christianity a legal religion and then as you mentioned theodosius actually makes it the official religion all that's happening in the fourth century so the christians who had known nothing of political power all of a sudden in the fourth century these are all the questions that are coming up and ambrose is one of the critical figures helping the early church decide and think through how does the state and the church interrelate. Uh, and then then he dies in the late fourth century and um, yeah, his impact has been felt since. So I'd be happy to talk more about any of that, but that's kind of the broad sketch. So uh, I've read that while emperors had many ways of enforcing their power through laws, taxes, and military force, 
bishops had some advantages. Like they normally lived longer. Most emperors were assassinated or killed. They knew their local areas and could help their people more effectively. Many ran programs to feed the poor and gave assistance in emergencies, and this made them popular with the people, while emperors enlisted young men and demanded taxes. One example that I know is Leo I, Bishop of Rome, who convinced Attila the Hun to not invade the city. Do you think the emperors felt threatened when they saw the people so loyal to bishops? Absolutely. Uh, I, th- I think you, you laid that out pretty well of the, the conflict that will come, especially in the Middle Ages. So if, if we just kind of fast forward a little bit, I think this even helps set the, the discussion on bishops and church-state relations and the papacy, right? How does that start to arise um, in the early church and really into the medieval period? The high watermark of this is like 1302 or so, and Boniface VIII is the pope at the time, and he writes a what we call a papal bull, which is like an official document of the Catholic Church, where he, it's called unum sanctum, which is always taken from the first two words of a papal bull, so just one holy, and he's talking about the role of the church and the role of the government, and he says basically there are two swords, one belongs to the government, one belongs to the church, but the church is the ultimate wielder of the sword because he would argue we have say over who goes to heaven or hell so if the po- or if the, if the emperor makes us mad we can just ensure that he gets sent to hell forever and and we will triumph in that way so we obviously have something eternal you have something temporal and the eternal sword is the most significant of them so that's kind of the place and when i when i t- talk to my students through church history one of the biggest markers of the medieval period is this strife that's happening between the Pope and the emperor. So we see kind of the high watermark in 1302 uh, when, when Unum Sanctum is written by Boniface VIII. Now, if we start walking backwards in time, I, I think Gregory the Great is the, um, I call him the door that kind of closes the patristic. That's the church father's period from the death of the apostles. So I date it from about 100 to 604 when Gregory the Great dies. And then the medieval period, he's the door because he's also opening up into the medieval period. And he's one of the first ones to really call himself Pope. And we see it a little bit before this, um, but he gets a letter and I can't remember. It was from one of the, uh, it was either Columbanus or Columba, I believe. And um, he calls Gregory his brother. And Gregory says, I'm not your brother. I'm your Papa. I'm your Pope. Um, and, And really showing that, uh, significance of that office of the the Roman see the 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 bishopric there in Rome. Now, if we keep going back, and you mentioned Leo, and I think Leo, uh, I debate in my own mind. I'll just be honest: is Leo kind of the first pope, or is uh, Gregory the first pope? And and really, the question for me is what displays kind of what we think of as the medi- medieval papacy. And you get that with Leo, right? So you mentioned he uh, Rome is getting sacked by Attila the Hun. And who goes out to meet him? It's not an emperor. It's Leo. Leo goes out to meet him and he turns him away from the city. And so to answer your question, uh, that was a long way to answer it. But just to say, absolutely, you see the rise in significance and influence and power amongst the Roman bishop. And we see it with Leo. We see it with Gregory. And then the question is, do we see it that much before Leo uh, in the early church. I think that's pretty debatable. 
So uh, going back to Ambrose, uh, when you read through his story, obviously it's easy to side with him because he's uh, the good guy in this story. But uh, later on, some bishops or popes uh, went a bit overboard with this, um, saying that they had authority over the whole world, including rulers. So uh, what are some examples of that happening? Yeah. I mean, it sounds nice, doesn't it? Just proclaim yourself ruler of the world and ultimate power. And um, it it just shows you what happens when the church, which was on the margins, the church that was persecuted, uh, the church that really had to do those things that you mentioned before of loving the poor, building hospitals, uh, caring for those in times of plague when everyone else left the city because they wanted to save their own skin and Christians were there. But now, all of a sudden, as as the emperors declare Christianity both legal and then the official religion, it becomes a power struggle. And I think this this is, um, I think God used it for good to spread Christianity. But I think it always comes at the price. So, yeah, what you see there is the the, the wielding of political authority. And again, I don't think we see it as early with Ambrose. I think for Ambrose, um, there's a genuine desire to see. Uh, true Christianity and Christology, who is Jesus, actually uh, shored up. So the fourth century really is that debate of, of what is the Trinity? Is Jesus fully God or is he not? Is the spirit divine? I mean, these are all the questions they're wrestling with in the fourth century while the political landscape is shifting. So it's a pretty important century in, in the history of the world. Um because you have the theological and the political questions being asked at, at that time. And I think for Ambrose, we we live in the modern American world where we want to see religious liberty for all. Well, that's not what's happening back then, really. And, and so you could see today, people will say, well, let the Arians have their church and let the Christians have their church. And, and the reality is you can't really, for Ambrose, you could not do that. Because to give up one of your basilicas in order for the Arians to have a place to worship is to send people to hell because they're going to believe a false thing about God. And and so I I don't like to see that as the political struggle that comes later. I think for him, there's a lot more purity of motive and a desire to see this theologically more than politically. Um, What happens later, though, is much more political as papal lands expand, as they raise up armies. Right. If we think about the Crusades, you have popes saying we're going to we're going to give you an indulgence, which is like a get out of hell free card if you go fight in the Crusades. So, yeah, raising up armies, taking up lands, taxation kinds of things, um, buying up powerful offices. I mean, all these things that the church did in the Middle Ages, I don't think we can read back into the early church just yet. So when did some bishops begin to be called popes? Yeah, that's pretty debated. So I I would say it's Leo or Gregory would be the first ones that I would consider the pope. Um, you know, one of the questions I think you all have is about Stephen, even if you go back to the third century, and you see this debate break out between the Roman bishop and Cyprian of Carthage. So actually, one of the books I wrote was on Cyprian of Carthage, and he uh, was a North African bishop, and controversy broke out with Rome. And uh, Cyprian's the first one to write about the nature of the church. He wrote a book called On the Unity of the Church, and uh, where he said in the first version of it that the Roman bishop has more authority. But then he got into a fight with Stephen of Rome, and he wrote a second version of that book saying that the Roman bishop doesn't have any more authority than any of the other bishops. All the bishops have 
like the um the seat of Peter, right, uh, for, for themselves. And that's the collection of the bishops that, that's more important. So, but Cyprian writes both of those because he is in a situation where uh, it, it benefits his argument. So the fact that he can even change that kind of midstream and the issue for Cyprian was over the, uh, the matter of baptism. So if you were baptized by somebody who later denied the faith, is your baptism valid or not? And Cyprian said, no, you would need to be baptized again. And Stephen of Rome said, yes, that it doesn't matter who baptizes you as long as they do in the right formula. But the point for this conversation is, I think it's way too early to see Stephen as the Pope because not enough people rallied around him even at that time. I mean, you, you have some mm -hmm. serious debate about that in the third century. And uh, on the topic of popes, I've also read that uh, sometimes uh, two people claimed to yeah. be the rightful successor of Peter the Apostle. So there were two popes for a time. Then later, one of them was recognized as the true pope and the other as the anti-pope. Right. Uh, this could pose quite a lot of problems, couldn't it? Well, I think it is. This is why I'm a Protestant. Well, this is one of the reasons why I'm a Protestant, not a Catholic, because I think there's some serious challenges when you talk about papal infallibility, which is the doctrine that when the Pope speaks what we call ex cathedra, that's from the chair on matters of faith and practice, he's infallible. That's tough when at times you've had multiple popes and then the Catholic church has to go back and say, you know what? So-and-so wasn't really the Pope. The other guy was the Pope. Or if you get even a little bit later uh, into the 15th century, you see a time where there's three popes or my favorite story of all, I think it was John the 23rd uh, was actually a pirate who went into hiding and ends up becoming the Pope. And then somebody recognizes him one day and says, weren't you the pirate that everybody was looking for? And he had to take off running. So um, there, there's some real serious problems in, in the history of the church if you're going to hold to papal infallibility. Yeah. Thank you for those answers. But before you have to go, we usually ask our guests two questions. First, how were you introduced to church history? And second, what suggestions do you have for kids like us who want to learn more? Wonderful questions. And first of all, I'm sure you guys get this all the time, but let me commend you for what you're doing. The fact that you care not just about the faith, but you care about how the faith has been handed down throughout generations is really important. I wish more Christians in the church knew these things because it's such a rich history of what God has done through his people for 2000 years. Um, so how did I get introduced to church history? Well, I've always loved history. Growing up, it was my favorite subject, so so enjoyed it. But when I was in college, thinking about going to seminary and uh, wanting to fill in some of my gaps of knowledge, I had a friend who had a book called Church History in Plain Language by a guy named Bruce Shelley. And it's very readable, very accessible for, for everyone. It's a one volume church history. And I was working as a paramedic at the time. And uh, I got this sweet gig working at a horse park as a paramedic. And I sat under this big oak tree in Kentucky and read Bruce Shelley's book on church history and fell in love with it. And especially with the early church. And the reason why I love the early church, and especially in the second century, they don't have the whole Bible. They don't have 2000 years of history, but they have a faith that's alive and so alive that they're willing to put their lives on the line. And a lot of them are martyred for their love for Jesus uh, even though they didn't have the benefit of a lot of things that we have today. So that that's what made me love church history. And then in seminary, took as many courses in it as I could and eventually did my PhD in it and never regretted it. And then the second question, yeah, let me get say the second question is, how can you get into it? Well, I would recommend that book. I think it's accessible for, for you all. And then I would say a couple of different things. One, never be afraid of the primary sources. So Athanasius wrote a book called in, On the Incarnation. 
that I think kids can read and benefit from. And in fact, if you get the version of it with C.S. Lewis's introduction, so C.S. Lewis is the one to remind your listeners who wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, like the Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, and wrote a lot of other books, but he actually wrote an introduction to Athanasius's On the Incarnation, where he said, one of the worst things is people don't read the primary sources, the sources themselves from 17, 1800 years ago, because they think they're going to be too hard to understand. So they read other books that people not nearly as smart as those guys have written, and then they get confused. I would say, go back to those, read On the Incarnation, read uh, the demonstration of the apostolic preaching by a guy named Irenaeus of Leon. It's just a really good understanding of how the whole Bible fits together. And, and then I would point you to, if, if you've not seen these before, Christian Focus Publishers has a lot of really good resources for kids. So a lot of, of writers who have tried to hit different age levels, and some of those are church history resources. So I'd commend those to you. Well, Dr. Arnold, we are very thankful for those recommendations and that you decided to spend this time with us and to share your vast knowledge. But now it's time to say goodbye. Once again, dear listeners, make sure to you visit our website, kidstalkchurchhistory.org, for the opportunity to win a copy of Simonetta Carr's book, Church History. That's also where you'll find all of our podcasts, special offers, news, and more. And don't forget to tell your friends where they can find us. In partnership with the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, and on behalf of my co-hosts, Lucy and Linus, I am Lucas. Thank you for listening to Kids Talk Church History.